0: Pray with me. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that in your word, we hear not only truth, but we see a revelation of your Son and what he has done for us. Lord, we ask that as we meditate on these words, we might see the glory of the work of Christ. That your spirit, that he would be active, that he would bring life to the hearers here this morning. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. So what do you think uh, about God? Theology in particular uh, is important. And by that I don't mean all the different topics we could, we could discuss in theology, but I mean specifically a theology proper. That is the study of God. Right? Theo is, is God, ology is the study of. For the doctrine of God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, from those teachings in, in Scripture flows the entirety of the Christian faith and religion. It is the very bedrock upon which our faith is built. God is infinite in His perfections, in His power, in His creativity. He is one God in three persons. There's a oneness to God and a threeness to God. And so much so that if you get the nature and the character of God wrong, it will work itself out in all your other beliefs. It will impact everything else. Because this is God's world. You are God's creation. And if you get God wrong, you're going to get things wrong in what he has made. He is the center of the universe. And as I say that, I realize that every single one of us is a limited, sinful person. And that we're not going to get the infiniteness of God perfect because we're not infinite. We're, we're limited. And that we all have certain blind spots. And so there is a truth that the degree of error matters. Right? If you get the Trinity wrong, if you deny the Trinity, you're outside the Christian faith. You're, just, you're, not, you're not a Christian. Now, if you have a disagreement over the minutia of how the Trinity relates within, its, within himself, how God relates within himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, well, that's probably not as serious as denying that there is such a thing as Trinity. Having said all that, that's not really what i want us to think about in today's passage i want you to think more about what god's disposition is toward you so when you when you think about god and you think about how he relates to you as his people what what do you think there are those who think that god is basically this endless cheerleader who will never correct you that he would never make any demands upon you. That he is this malleable thing that you can shape and form into whatever you want him to be. Which really just means that you're God and you're creating what you think God should be. And we have to avoid that. And yet, is also in Reformed Christian circles, in our circles, I think sometimes we have too negative of a view of God. So I want you to ponder this question. Can we live a life that is wholly pleasing to God. Can you do that? I know many within the Reformed community, of which I am a part, would say without hesitation, no. No, we cannot. We are worms, and even at our best, and our best works are nothing but filthy rags. And there is a sense in which that is true. We are sinners in our And in our sin, we are outside of Christ and we can do no good. But that's not always the way man was. Man was created by God and he was created by God good in God's image. And that truth of what man's value is as an image bearer is meant to balance out our doctrine of sin and total depravity. But my fear is that many within the Reformed camp tend to focus on how bad we are And that we can do nothing at all to please God. And this has the unintended effect of turning God into this eternal grouch up in the sky who is beyond unreasonable and you will always just disappoint. That's not the God we find in the pages of Scripture. I do not want you to walk away from this church thinking you can never please God and his expectations are too high and therefore just give up. That's not what we find in the New Testament. And again, such misunderstandings are rooted in genuine teachings within Scripture that we then distort or neglect other genuine teachings in Scripture. The more I study Scripture, the more I find that God gives us truths that are held in tension in our minds, not in His mind, but in our minds, they're held in tension. And we have this truth here that you must hold to, and this truth here, and they balance each other out. We are sinners. Rebels and worms unable to please God in one sense. In our fallen human nature, we truly are spiritually dead. But there is gloriously more to the equation. In Colossians 1, 9-14, we get a call to live a life that is marked by a worthy manner of life that is fully pleasing to God. Fully pleasing to God. And that is Paul's prayer for those in the church of Colossae and it is his expectation that they would attain such a life. So put it another way, there truly is a way to live that pleases God. There is a way to live in which um, God will say at the end of your life, well done, good and faithful servant. This is not a call to perfection for you will never reach that. God has provided perfection for you in his son but we must not think of god as up there always disappointed in us that's not the god of scripture he calls us to live a life that is worthy and pleasing to him because by grace you can do so and by grace god expects us to do so and so in this passage i think we find or i know we find five different ways to walk in a worthy manner Paul gives us five ways that you can live a worthy, pleasing life. And the first is the call for Christians to bear fruit. Jesus tells us in the Gospels that you will know a tree by its fruit. So if you're walking outside and you see an orange on a tree, you know it's an orange tree. If you see an apple on a tree, you know that it's an apple tree. In the same way as the analogy works itself out, you will know a person by the fruit of his life or her life. That you can tell by how they live what type of a tree or a person they are. A bad tree does not produce good fruit. And so, in the same way, Paul picks up on that in verses 9 and 10 of Colossians 1 and says, bear good fruit. If you want to live a life that is pleasing to God, you need to bear fruit. Good fruit. Look again at these verses, 9 and 10. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. I want you to note uh, two, two things here. First, it's Paul's fervent prayer is for them to produce fruit. Him and his associates, when they heard about the faith in this church, it became their daily prayer that they would bear fruit. In other words, this is really important to Paul. This is what he wants to see in every church. For fruit confirms that God is at work in an individual, in a community. And you can think of the debate that raged within uh, evangelicalism a few decades ago. It's called the Lordship Salvation a debate. Basically, there was a movement that came within Christianity that said, it doesn't matter how you live. You can have Jesus as your Savior and not as your Lord. So you can be saved and just live your life with no fruit whatsoever. And so, as I said, you can have Jesus as your Savior while not making him the Lord of your life, which is really A silly term. As we get to the next two weeks here, you're going to see that Jesus is Lord of your life, whether you recognize it or not. Jesus' status as Lord is not up to you. You don't get to pick it. But the point was that the debate was over whether or not being saved impacted your life. And pastors like John MacArthur proved uh, from the scriptures that you cannot be saved without some change within your life. In other words, when God saves someone, something changes. And that's all over the New Testament. And so here, Paul's prayer, his continuous prayer, is that those in the church of Colossae would walk in a worthy manner, bearing fruit. Second, note that Paul's prayer is that they would live a life that is fully pleasing to God. Go back to my opening question. Can you please God with your conduct in life? Yes. Yes. In Christ you most certainly can and you should. Again, not perfection, but a life that is generally described as obedient and faithful. And in view of that we can say you can please God with your life, as Paul works this out, by bearing good fruit, being tied to every good work. Wherever you go, wherever you find yourself, you may do so, or you may conduct your life in such a way as that you are bearing good fruit by every good work. Not just some works, but all of your works. And so when you are wronged, do you forgive? That's a good work. Now let's be clear, that work does not save you. But when you are saved, forgiven people, forgive. When someone does something offhanded that you could take offense at, Are you patient and forbear that sin as God forbears your sin? When someone is in need, do you help them? When you are tempted to sin, do you preach the gospel to yourself and put that sin off? Do you lay down your life for the good of others? Do you serve others? The New Testament is full of commands given to the church again and again that we call the one another's. That within the church, especially the local church, so for you, within Christ's Bible church, you are to be practicing the one another's. Forgiving one another, bearing one another's burdens, serving one another. So are you serving? Are you encouraging? Are you bearing someone else's burdens along with him or her? Are you sacrificing for others? If you're married, are you laying down your life for your spouse? Are you loving your spouse as Christ loves the church? As Christ has loved you? Do you give the benefit of the the doubt when you could be offended at him or her? If you have children, are you sacrificing your desires for their good? Are you discipling them in the faith? Are you teaching them in word and deed what it means to be a Christian? At work, do you do your work for your employer or do you do it as unto the Lord, if you're the boss, do you manage in such a way that your um, employees would describe you as reasonable, fair, and righteous? Are you bearing every good work in every area of life? That's just a brief list I came up with off the top of my head this week. When Paul says, bear good fruit in every good work. Your whole world is full of areas and where you can do good works. You don't do them to be saved, but you do them because you have been saved. Basically, this is the call to put to death your old self and to bring to life the new man. Because the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And you can practice those wherever you go. Declaring the work of God. A second way... Uh, to walk in a worthy manner, to live a life pleasing to the Lord, is to increase in knowledge and in wisdom. Verses 9b and 10b. Paul explains that a life that bears good fruit must be accompanied by an increasing of knowledge and wisdom. To put it plainly, Christianity is not a religion that is just based in experiences. It's not just about having uh, some spiritual high. That doesn't mean there aren't experiences that you must have as a Christian. You must be born again by the Spirit. If you are not, you cannot be a Christian. Jesus commands that you must be baptized. The baptism doesn't save you, but he does command it. It There's a command. You either obey it or you disobey Christ. You must be baptized. You must take the Lord's Supper. These are experiences that we have that preach the gospel to us again and again. But experience is not the foundation of the Christian faith. It's not. It's rooted in truth, what is good, right, and beautiful and true. See, unlike the mystery religions of Paul's day, Christianity was not about finding some secret knowledge gained by some secret mystical experience within. And so, no matter how extravagant and sometimes weird uh, the charismatic movement gets, you can have spiritual experiences and not know the Spirit of God. Pagan religions have shown that again and again and again. You can have mystical experiences and not know God. And this is very appealing in our day because our relativism of our day absolutizes the self and personal experiences. You ever wonder? Why charismatic theology is so popular today? It's because it fits. It fits with the culture. It's all experience-based. But Christianity is not primarily about my truth. Instead, it is rooted in knowledge and absolute truth. The claim Christianity makes is that the doctrines of Scripture are true to what is there outside of yourself. When we talk about the triune God of being Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it's not just that we like that, it's that that is who God objectively is. And if you get that wrong, you get God wrong. And so for the Christian, they are called to grow in the knowledge of these eternal truths, and as you know these truths, you will be transformed by the renewing of your mind, Paul writes elsewhere. And so to bear fruit, one must grow in knowledge and wisdom. Don't miss that. Knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge is very basic. It means that you know something. To know something. Wisdom is that this idea that knowledge is meant to inform and shape how you live. There's often this debate about Christianity. Is it the head or is it the heart? Well, the New Testament doesn't really divide the two. The head and the heart go Together, there really is a way to know a bunch of facts about Christianity and not be transformed by it. When you dig into Scripture and the layers upon layers of Scripture and and the rich tradition of Christian theology, it can be something fun to study. It can be something fun just to debate without it ever taking root in your life. But such a knowledge, even if you get it factually correct, is worthless and dead. It's not doing you any good. So even though Christianity is more than knowledge, it is never less than that. You have to hear me on that. You can't believe in Jesus if you don't know the basic facts of who he is. You can't believe in the God who is there if you have no idea that there is a God that is there. Christianity is not just a faith in faith. There is a content to it that claims to align with reality. And this is why the Christian church has since its foundation placed an emphasis on preaching and teaching. To declare truths. Preaching is the process of me standing behind this kind of pulpit-y thing and making claims about God. Now, if I'm just taking them from my own mind, then you should fire me. But if I'm taking them from God's Word... These are the truth claims that the faith is built upon. Claims about the person and the work of Christ. And these things matter. In the New Testament, when it lists qualifications for elders or pastors, one of the things that they must be able to do is to shepherd the flock through teaching. Teaching the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And last week, we saw at the beginning of this book that there's power in God's Word. That in God's Word, we have the truth that transforms ourselves and the world. And so, it is our job as the elders of Christ's Bible Church to bring that truth to you week in and week out through song, through the Lord's Supper, baptisms when we do them, and through the preaching and teaching. And Let me make it clear here, there are lots of forms of teaching Not every elder has to be able to stand behind a pulpit and preach to you. Teaching happens in classrooms. It happens at different age levels. It happens in one-on-one conversations. But to be an elder is to be able to teach God's Word to God's people. And so Paul calls us here to increase our knowledge and wisdom of the truth. And this means at least three things. First, it is a call for you to study Scripture And to study theology. It is a call for you as an individual to take ownership of your own growth in the knowledge of the faith. Second, it's a call for you then, once you grow in that knowledge, to study yourself in light of that truth. When you study Scripture, you should be holding it up to you. Where do I need to repent? Not primarily where does Bob need to repent or John need to repent, but where do I need to repent? Where do I need to have a greater faith? And third, it's then also a call to study the age you live in. Right? He studies the scriptures and theology to know God. You study it then to know yourself. And third, you study it to know the age you are living in because Satan is clever and he has schemes and he runs those plays in this age. And if you don't know what play he's running, then you're probably being fooled by it yourself. And Scripture gives you the way to avoid that. So much so that I view my job as a preacher to keep one foot in Scripture and one foot in this world. Not letting the world shape how I view Scripture, but how Scripture helps me view the world so that I can teach you how to live in this age. And by doing these things, we bear fruit and please our God. The next way to live in a worthy manner is to recognize that you do so with a supernatural power. As I studied this passage, as I read it again and again, uh, it's verse 11 that kept jumping out to me. Look again at verse 11. It says, Do all these things, being strengthened with all power, according to His glorious might, For all endurance and patience with joy. The last decade or so has seen a just boom of uh, superhero movies. So much so that as I as I think about all the superhero movies I've seen, I wonder if there's any actor left in Hollywood who hasn't been in at least one. Why so many superhero movies? Some of them are good, others of them uh, not so much. But why are they so successful? Why do they make millions upon millions upon millions of dollars? One reason is because deep down, we all feel our own inadequacy, our own weakness. And we all feel the need for someone who is stronger than ourselves to come and save us from this endless barrage of evil that fills our news uh, feed every single day. Will somebody bigger and stronger please take care of this evil? And this is rooted long before Marvel or DC Comics uh, hit hit the stage. You can think back to the ancient myths as well. And even in German theological ideas, there's this idea of an ubermensch. If you don't speak German, that means Superman. An ubermensch. But as powerful as gamma rays or sun rays or spider bites or mutations, maybe in movies, those things will probably actually kill you in real life, they don't give power like we see here In this passage, there's something different here. You can live a pleasing life to God, you can bear good fruit because God's power is at work within you. This this should cause you to sit up a little bit. It says, You can do these things with all power, not some, with all power in the glorious might of God Almighty. So the omnipotent one, the one who upholds every molecule in this universe by every millisecond by millisecond, the one who brought out of nothing everything that exists, the one who directs the infinite amount of molecules to achieve his desired end, the one who flooded the earth, who parted the Red Sea, who brought down the wall of Jericho, who caused the sun to stand still, the one who swallowed up the altar for Elijah, the one who rose Lazarus from the dead, who commanded the sea and the wind to stop, that all-powerful God is strengthening you. It's kind of a big deal. To be a Christian is to be empowered by the Creator God the Alpha and the Omega, to live a life that is pleasing to Him and to bear good fruit. Oh, I want to be very clear here. This is not a call for you to become some fraudulent faith healer. Say, I have the power of God. I'm going to touch you and you can just become better. But rather, this power in the New Testament is always rooted in personal growth in holiness and becoming more like your Savior. It is God who saved you. It is God who sanctifies you by His power. Of course, you still have to believe. You still have to put off the old man and put on the new man. But by His power, you can and will grow in holiness. The Almighty God has guaranteed that for those who believe. By His power, brothers and sisters, you can forgive that deep wrong when repentance comes. By that power, husbands, you can lay down your your life and love your wife as Christ loves the church. By that power, wives, you can lay down your life and submit to your husband and respect him. By his power in his gospel, spouses, your marriage can be a haven in a world marked by evil. And here's the thing, as messy as that is in this life, that should be the norm in the Christian church. That should be the norm. But you must put to death the sin that so easily entangles you. By his power, you will grow in holiness, in knowledge, in endurance, and in faithfulness. The God of the universe, through the work of Christ and by the power of the Spirit, is empowering you to walk in a worthy manner. So that leads to the next way to live a life pleasing to God. Be thankful. Be thankful. Grumbling and complaining are often the signs of a heart that lacks faith. But the Christian knows that even in the darkest night there are reasons for thankfulness. Verse 12. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in, in, of the, of the saints in light. When you see what God has done, when you see that he has not only created you, but he is saving you and empowering you, you should be grateful and thankful to him. This is where those great reformed doctrines hit us anew. You were totally depraved before Christ came and died for you, before the Spirit caused you to be born again. You were a worm and wholly unworthy. You are a sinner through and through, but God has saved you and he has done what you could never do on your own. Therefore, be thankful. Let your heart operate primarily from a place of thankfulness. That doesn't mean when bad things come, you ignore them. But it does mean that you are thankful for what God has done and is doing. And all of this is built upon the foundation of God's work for us through his Son, Jesus Christ. Second half of verse 12 through verse 14 kind of summarize this. If you're going to live a life that is worthy and fully pleasing to God, it is rooted in what God has done through the Son. Look at verse 12 again. "'Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption.'" The forgiveness of sins. The focus on these closing verses is on what God has objectively done for you through Christ. You can't live the worthy life without him and what Christ has done. And there are three objective realities here of what he has accomplished for us. First, through the work of Christ, God has qualified us. So when you apply for a job, there's a list of qualifications. Generally, you have to have this level of education, maybe so many years of experience. These are things that you have done that qualify you for this position. But here, in the process of salvation, it is God who has met those qualifications for you, in you. You need to be sinless. You need to be holy. You need to have your debt paid for. You couldn't do those things. But God has done that. And what has he qualified you for? He's qualified you for an inheritance as a saint. The new creation, the kingdom of Christ, it is yours. Because you now meet the qualifications. And you meet the qualifications by the power of the Almighty God. No one can change that. That's unchangeable. Second, God has delivered you from the domain of darkness and has brought you into the kingdom of the sun. That is, if you are in Christ right now, you are objectively out of the kingdom of darkness and you are in the kingdom of his Son. You were stuck in sin in nature's night and now no more. You had no hope. Now you have a hope because God has done these things. This is not just a future reality. God's kingdom has not come in full. But you are, if you are in faith right now, objectively in that kingdom. It's yours. And third, God has forgiven your sins. You are redeemed. The heart of our problem and the heart of the problem at the center of the universe is the sin of humanity. With sin comes death. A debt was on your shoulders from the moment you were conceived. But in Christ, he took your sin and you are forgiven. You're redeemed. To be redeemed means to be bought. To be purchased. God has bought you out of that sin debt. And there are no returns. It is God who has done these things. And he did them for his own glory and for our good. And this is the reality of the Christian faith. That from that foundation, God works in our lives to transform us degree by degree... And to empower us to live lives that are worthy and fully pleasing to Himself. You can only do this because what Christ has done, but because Christ has done this, you will live that life. And you do it by faith in Christ, in Christ alone. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you are a God of power, that you are a God of mercy. And that you have worked in our hearts, in our minds, and in this world a way forward. That you have wrought salvation for your people by the death and resurrection of your Son. Lord, as we look within, there are many, many reasons why we would doubt such power is at work. But may you train our hearts and our minds to look at the finished work of Christ. And we ask that your Spirit would renew our minds and our hearts day by day. That we would increase in the knowledge and wisdom of your truth. And through that, we may become more like your Son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.